Welcome to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar-in-residence of Media Studies at CU Boulder, and we join you on the fourth Thursday of every month to learn about economic democracy and cooperative business. The Co-op Power Hour is a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle, which you can learn more about at our website, coloradocoops.info. Today, we're talking about what it takes to build and run worker-owned co-op businesses. These are businesses where the people in charge are the people who work there, the people who contribute value to the business and who make it work. Cities around the country right now are developing policies to support worker co-ops. This is happening in New York and Madison, Wisconsin, and Oakland, California, and other places. Over the summer, Bernie Sanders, uh, 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 senator and, and, and uh, presidential candidate uh, uh, sponsored a bill to support worker ownership nationally. And one of the co-sponsors of the House version was Representative Jared Polis from here in Colorado. We had him on the show last month. This idea of worker-owned business is on the rise. Over the summer, I was in Italy visiting large worker co-op factories that are building complicated machines with advanced technology. The same thing has happened famously in the Basque town of Mondragon in Spain. But worker co-ops in the U.S. have tended to be fairly small, and they face considerable barriers. Much more common has been the employee stock ownership plan. But this, this idea of worker cooperatives, truly democratic businesses, uh, truly democratic workplaces, uh, uh, remains something that uh, uh, we still have uh, a lot of work to do for. Today, we're going to look into how people are building and working in worker co-ops here in Colorado, exploring the challenges as well as the benefits of the model. We'll hear from Ankit uh, Sharma, who works at Namaste Solar, a worker uh, co-op in Boulder, Colorado, as well as Linda Phillips, a lawyer who is part of Colorado Cooperative Developers. But first, we'll hear from Amy Barras and Bill Stevenson of Rocky Mountain Farmers Union. Amy and Bill, welcome to the Co-op Power Hour. Thank you. Great to be yeah. here. Thanks, Nathan. Can you start by telling us a bit about the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union? What is its history and why is a farmers union now starting to get involved in oh. urban cooperatives? Maybe I could take that, yeah, Amy. Yeah, so. Okay, great. <laughs> um, Rocky Mountain Farmers Union has a marvelous history, actually, with cooperatives. It's an organization that's over 100 years old. We are part of the larger National Farmers Union, and we are, our mission is to advocate for the interests of family farmers and ranchers and their communities. Uh, we are a progressive, grassroots, member-driven organization. So the policies that we advocate for are developed very much by the people who are members of Rocky Mountain Farmers Union. It's not top-down. It's very much bottom-up. Uh, in any case, uh, cooperatives, as I said, uh, have played a big role in, uh, in Farmers Union history. Back in the late uh, 1900s and early 20th century, um, our farmers and ranchers looked to the cooperative model to, in an effort to offset the, uh, the really uh, unfair, uh, very unfair uh, power of, uh, of large railroads and, and other um, industries that, um, 
that they relied on to get their products to market. Uh, and uh, alone, these farmers and ranchers were basically the victims the, of, of the pricing, whatever pricing these particular uh, businesses wanted to impose upon them. But together, uh, the feeling was that uh, they could have their own market leverage that would be great enough to, uh, to offset that, uh, uh, th those, that unruly power of the, of the large institutions. So um, since that time, cooperatives, as I said, have been uh, so much a part of our, of our ethos. And, uh, and now more than ever, we have uh, a cooperative development center at Rocky Mountain Farmers Union uh, that has four full-time staff members, two part-time staffers, uh, as well as a consultant. Uh, and uh, as you might imagine, uh, we have long focused on rural work, but and, and happily, uh, thanks to the funding of the United States Department of Agriculture and our own Rocky Mountain Farmers Union Foundation, we have a long history with, uh, with doing rural work, rural cooperative development work with producers, uh, farmers, and ranchers, uh, mostly. Uh, but lately, we have been very blessed, thanks to the, uh, um, the commitment and generosity of the Denver Foundation and uh, uh, the Piton Foundation, Gary Community Investments also here in Metro Denver, and other funders uh, to focus on the worker cooperative model. Uh, and that would be uh, focusing on that model, on developing that model in lower income communities of Metro Denver, and, uh, and that is where Amy comes in. You've heard enough from me. Um, Amy is uh, the manager of our Urban Worker Cooperative Development Program, uh, and uh, has, has been so for three years. We're so lucky to have her on board, and, uh, and I should add before, uh, excuse me, before I turn uh, the mic over to Amy, that that one of the really exciting things is that the Denver Foundation came to us uh, with respect to uh, the cooperative model. Uh, they viewed it and still view it as a way of really empowering community members to take ownership over their own uh, economic lives, their own economic destinies. So, uh, so it's been a great relationship, thanks to all of those foundations. And gosh, I hope that's a good enough summary for you. So Amy, can you tell us a bit about what uh, RMFU is doing uh, uh, to develop worker co-ops? Yeah, so um, the as, as Bill mentioned, the Urban uh, Cooperative Development Program, which we now are calling the, the Urban Co-op Center, um, began in 2014. And we've worked on a number of projects, probably about 10 at this point, um, of co-op development projects in various stages. Um, we've assisted two new worker co-ops to launch. Um, that's been Community Language Co-op, which is an interpreters and translators cooperative, um, and My Nanny Solution, which is a, a nanny co-op. Um, and really worked with both of those co-ops in getting started, provided more intensive incubation with My Nanny Solution. Um, and 
we're currently working on, I think, four projects uh, at this time. We've been working for about the past year or, or longer um, on two co-ops that will launch in early 2018. Um, a Metro Denver home care cooperative that will provide home care services to seniors and be owned by caregivers, um, and a second child care cooperative that will be owned by the child care providers um, and focus on private family nanny care. Um, and. And our, our focus really has been on, as, as Bill mentioned, um, working in low-income communities and, and working with folks who face barriers to um, finding good employment, to becoming a business owner. And so we've really, um, through some trial and error and, some, and a lot of um, learning in our first few years, um, as well as looking around at, at what co-ops are doing that really works. So looking at what is Namaste doing and how do they onboard new members and um, looking at co-op development organizations around the country that are really having success with building strong, scalable co-ops that are emerging out of lower income communities like Center for Family Life in Brooklyn, um, formerly Wages in the Bay Area, Arismendi. Um, we've developed a model that we call a, a build, recruit, and incubate model, where um, we as the co-op development organization take on the upfront business development. Um, because as anyone who started a, a small business knows, there's a lot of work that goes into uh, the research, the business planning, the raising capital before you actually launch a business and before there's a paycheck, right? Um, so what we do is we, we take on that piece as an organization. When the business is getting ready to launch, we recruit workers into it who then become worker owners, um, go through a candidacy period as you would, as a member would when they join um, any co-op, um, and then become the full owners over time. Um, and and we can talk more about that model. But, but what we found is, um, you know, I think through our own experience as well as, as looking at the experience of others, um, that particularly for um, folks who are coming in and haven't had the experience of running a business before, are maybe learning new job skills, um, and also kind of learning that, that new democratic structure and building the culture that um, kind of spreading that out over time makes it more possible, particularly for someone if they're, they're working a low-wage job or possibly multiple uh, lower-wage jobs or and in addition to family responsibilities, um, that kind of doing it this in this way um, opens that opportunity up for more folks who have to be, you know, can't kind of sustain a long volunteer process with no wage attached. Great. And how, how does developing this kind of business differ from uh, building another kind of small business? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, in some ways, it's very much the same, um, but there is the, the whole piece of, of that it's a co-op, and so it's going to operate differently um, with a democratic structure in place, um, building a very cooperative and collective culture where um, workers and, and worker owners really have a say in what happens with the business. Um, so while the business itself is is developing and and um, you know needing to be successful in the marketplace, just like any other business, there's also that whole piece of the democratic side that makes it different from a, a traditional startup. Mm -hmm. Do you do you see that as added difficulty, or does that create advantages? I mean, it, you know, I, I often see that debate forming. 
uh, maybe we'll come back to it later too uh, uh, and hear from from the experience of others but uh, uh, some people seem to see the co-op uh, model as introducing more complexity more challenges uh, others see it as enabling uh, 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 efficiencies that couldn't otherwise happen mm-hmm. uh, in your experience uh, how, what does it end up contributing or or uh, what challenges does it end up posing yeah, I think I think the answer is both. I mean, it, there are definite um, advantages and I wouldn't say disadvantages, but certainly challenges. Um, and really related to, um, you know, a, a, a startup or a running a business is never easy. And so um, kind of learning those pieces of how do you work together and how do you set up those structures um, that enable that kind of uh, participatory environment. Um, those things are really critical right from the beginning. And then not only do they need to be, do they kind of need to work on paper, but then they need to be practiced. And for most of us, we haven't worked in that kind of an environment before. Um, so it's a learning process. And it's something that people need to be committed to and really practice together over time um, to really kind of solidify that culture. Um, In terms of the advantages, I think, you know, we always talk about the sort of the pooled risk and the pooled resources can build something stronger. And so you bring people together with their different perspectives and their different strengths and weaknesses. Um, And and there's a collective power in that. And we know that worker co-ops have a a better survival rate than traditional startups um, and are more resilient over time. So there, there are some clear advantages. Doesn't mean it's easy. And often co-ops come out of the uh, a perceived need from among the prospective members. You know, uh, say a group of people in a neighborhood uh, don't have access to uh, healthy food, so they might form a, a food co-op. Uh, in this case, the organization is doing that kind of discovery and uh, market research. Um, what is that involved? How have you identified what you think might be the most um, uh, uh, you know the the right the right uh, sectors to enter into and the right markets to enter. Yeah, and um, to this point, we really have um, we're sort of shifting into this new model, and so the the co-ops that we've worked on to up till now really have come from groups in the community coming to us and saying, "This is the idea we have. This is the need we see." Um, and so, but but we do recognize that that may not always be the case, that there could be good co-op opportunities where it's not necessarily that we're responding to someone coming, but that we're seeing those opportunities. Um, and so we've been working on kind of developing our criteria for how do we choose a good opportunity or, or a new industry. And some of the things that we're looking at are, um, what's the growth opportunity? because we want to be able to build uh, worker cooperatives that have opportunity to scale um, so that we're creating you know, good jobs and, and creating that kind of um, ownership opportunity, not just for a small number of people, but that, that they can really grow. Um, so that just it really involves kind of looking around the region and what are the industries that are growing, like home care. We know that that's growing. So, um, and what are the opportunities within an industry to really create a better job? Can we raise wages um, through a different business model? Um, can the co-op provide significant advantages through benefits and workplace democracy that wouldn't exist otherwise? Great. And Bill, I'd like to hear from you. 
how this project relates to the history of RMFU. You know how how uh, uh, this this effort toward worker cooperation might draw from uh, uh, learn from the experience of uh, agricultural cooperatives. Whether there's any interaction or are there tensions uh, between these different kinds of models? Because often you know worker co-ops, the people interested in worker co-ops are are uh, coming from different place and with different orientations than people developing, you know, cooperative grain silos sure. and things like that. So t tell us a bit about the relationship. Well, I, great question. Thanks, Nathan. I think, um, yeah, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of tension there. Only, um, only though with respect to sort of the model that we're following in developing the co-op. In, in, in the rural space, uh, we have not used the build, recruit, and incubate model, sort of the top-down model. It's, uh, it's, as you've mentioned before, it's really been, uh, in every instance, people coming together to meet a need uh, that they otherwise, uh, that, that otherwise has avoided them or evaded them. Um, and so I would give you the example of, uh, you know, generally our producer cooperatives uh, we do a lot of work with small uh, farmers and ranchers uh, and uh, bringing them together to create some really uh, dynamic efficiencies in the marketplace with respect to uh, marketing and distributing their products together uh, and doing things together uh, that they otherwise couldn't, uh, couldn't do alone. For example, a, a cooperative in southwest Colorado, 20 or so small producers, they uh, individually could not uh, access the institutional markets for their food products, um, uh, and uh, but together they've been able to uh, start to break into the restaurant, the very vibrant restaurant scene in Southwest Colorado, the resort, uh, uh, the resorts that are there, as well as uh, starting uh, to um, to access hospitals as well. So. Um, wonderful story uh, of people coming together again to meet a need uh, and they came together themselves I mean that this is what they perceived as something they needed to do and they came to us I think what Amy and the Urban Center is uh, are doing is is really so exciting because uh, as Amy mentioned before there's so much groundwork uh, that needs to be done with respect to a, a so-called bottom-up co-op, uh, as well as a, a top-down co-op, but, but what's really interesting is that um, when, you br when Amy and her staff are able to bring workers into that build, recruit, and incubate model, these workers really don't miss any strides. I mean, they go from uh, workplace to another sort of workplace where they are, of course, so much more empowered, and they actually have that ownership interest, which is just so incredibly important. Uh, so, um, so we at Farmers Union, we have a long, long history of, of advocating uh, for, um, for people who are, are dispossessed, who are not uh, necessarily sharing in all of the benefits that may, uh, that may exist with respect to um, uh, living in the U.S. and and so the worker co-op model, uh, you know, in lower income communities especially, very much resonates with the uh, the farmers union uh, philosophy. Well, fantastic! And uh, for anybody who wants to learn more 
uh, uh, Bill and Amy are going to be joining us for our next uh, uh, in-person study circle uh, in Denver. That's uh, October 17th, and you can learn more about that on our website at coloradocoops.info. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for I'm having delighted. us. delighted. Thank you. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, and uh, we'll be with you on the fourth Thursday of every month. Today we're talking about worker cooperatives. Now that your pictures in the paper be Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, Scholar-in-Residence of Media Studies at CU Boulder. And today we're talking about worker cooperatives in the Denver-Boulder area. Uh, I'm joined now by Ankit Sharma, who is a worker owner at Namaste Solar. Ankit, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Can you tell us a bit about what Namaste Solar is and how you got involved? I'd be happy to. Namaste Solar is a res residential and commercial photovoltaic designer and installer. Um, we operate both locally in the Colorado area and uh, nationally, um, commercially. Uh, we operate in California and in the Northeast. Fantastic. And, and just break that down a little bit. What do you do there? What sure. is it? What does your daily life look like? So I'm a commercial designer there. I'm responsible for designing some of our larger uh, community solar gardens. Uh, so I'm responsible for the electrical calculations, the AutoCAD design, and supporting our install crews to make sure that the systems that are designed work in the field. And you're also a worker owner. That is correct. How did you get to that position in this company? Where did you come from before and, and how did you get involved in Namaste? Yeah, I'll try to summarize that. So coming out of college, I actually worked for a submarine engineering company, and I found that it didn't represent who I wanted to be in the world. And so that was in the Northeast, and I, I moved out west for grad school at CU, and I really focused on energy. So throughout my studies at CU, I was really interested in energy and the impact that um, specifically clean energy can have. So I had um, several stints in uh, Rwanda and Kenya working on cleaner cook stoves um, with Engineers Without Borders um, during my time as a grad student. And I was very interested in renewables. So I got a job in the solar industry out here and worked for a year and, um, and heard of Namaste. And I applied every chance I got because I was really interested in the cooperative model and being emotionally invested in a company. Um, so I've been working at Namaste for two and a half years now, and uh, Namaste Solar has a um, candidacy period. So when I started, I went through a year of candidacy and then was able to buy in and become a co-owner. Great. And so your ownership is more than just emotional. It's more than just that feeling of ownership that many companies try to engender uh, in their in their employees, you know, I was recently reading an article in which a, a, a management researcher was talking about 
this concept of psychological ownership, right? Trying to uh, achieve that, but but you've got more than that. Sure. So what does that ownership consist of? So there's there's the practical side too. I am financially vested. Um, when you have the when you go through your year of candidacy, you do have the option of buying ownership stock. So I have skin in the game, and and yeah, I I do feel just this sense of personal responsibility that I when I design something or when I I have a project that I want to make sure that it is done well because so many other people's jobs depend on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and how does that affect governance? How does that affect how your workplace is managed? Does it mean that that every decision is made by consensus by everyone? And and how many how many people are there in the company now? I'd say there are over 150 people at the company, but it is divided into co-owners, candidates, and employees. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a fantastic question about how decisions are made, and there are other, there are certain levels. Um, there is a lot of consensus building. Um, teams do have team leads, but these t- team leads are really empathetic and really uh, collaborative. So they'll consult with their teams and decisions are usually made as a group. But there's also an understanding that if there's too many decisions made in a group, it'll be hard to get stuff done. So there is a, a level of empowerment as well for team leads to make decisions for the CEO to make decisions that are in their purview. Absolutely. And and in that process of candidacy, what kind of education did you have to go through? I mean, education is one of the the core principles of the cooperative model, and it sounds like it's it's uh, happening at your company as well. Absolutely. So the education consists of um, people like to joke and say that it's a Namaste Solar MBA. <laughs> You're assigned a mentor during your candidacy. So that's a person that you can go to and talk openly. Um, Something that we talk about is FOH conversation, frank, open, and honest. So with that mentor, you're able to practice that. Um, There are also candidate curriculum days. And during these days, you learn about the history of Namaste Solar, um, what goes into the financials, and um, about the solar coaster when rebates were taken away just to give more of a holistic understanding of the company. Um, and the solar coaster is the, the kind of course of, of uh, government subsidies and this sort of thing? In a way, yeah. It's, it's, it has to do with utilities, with uh-huh. rebates being taken away, just that, that unknown and those quick changes that happen in the solar industry. So you have to learn not just about how to uh, uh, set up a community solar array, say, but also how to run the business and how to think like a manager, like a director. How to think like a co-owner, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And are there, um, uh, uh, does this introduce inefficiencies into the process? Does it feel like sometimes you get bogged down in having to make decisions collaboratively, like too many co- cooks in the kitchen, uh, too many solar installers in the on the array? You know, uh, uh, does does having so many people feeling empowered uh, uh, cause problems sometimes? Absolutely, it's it's very challenging, but it's part of the beauty of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have four big picture meetings a year where we discuss and vote on company issues, and during those meetings, there are a lot of voices in the room. 
it's typically um, attended by all of the co-owners. So it can be 80 plus people in a room uh, voting on company issues. But I find that when people have a chance to voice their opinions, even if a vote doesn't go their way, just knowing that they had a chance to express their viewpoint helps ease that pain. It makes it easier to get on board with the decision. And having discussions about company issues just provides more momentum. So even though decisions uh, are slower, we arrive at a decision more slowly than a traditional company. I'd say there's mo more momentum behind it. Mm -hmm. Now, is this something that you think customers see? Um, is does does the worker ownership model affect the experience that you have uh, with uh, with your clients? I'd say so. I I see it from our install crews being on site um, and really holding themselves accountable, being like, okay, I you know I'm going to go out of my way um, to make sure that this customer is well taken care of because I am invested in this business and the success of this business. Um, I notice people reaching outside of their direct job roles because of this co-op co model. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll notice designers, you know, talking to people about solar and playing more of a sales role. I just notice a lot of cross collaboration. And uh, Namaste is not just a co-op, it's also a B Corp, which is a newer idea. Uh, that has some overlap uh, overlap with the co-op model. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what a B Corp is? I know you've been involved in in uh, and the B Corp strategy for the company. Sure, I'd be happy to talk to that. So B Corp is a third party that um, provides a score for various companies to make sure that they are interested in a triple bottom line, profit, people, and the environment. And and I'm so happy that we have that accountability through a third party, um, because when we go through this certification, it helps us understand where we could improve and where our strengths are. And to be able to go through the certification and find that, you know, we need to improve our diversity. There are um, aspects of our governance that could be more democratic. It's just a very enlightening and helpful process. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, uh, for a long time, cooperatives had have had this principle, uh, uh, have shared this principle of concern for community, this idea that the cooperative is not just for its members, but is actually supposed to serve a wider community. And the, the B Corp structure is a way of of ensuring that, or maybe of, of adding a little bit of extra uh, support for that principle. Um what are some ways in which uh, Namaste ends up playing that role and and uh, being a a company that has a wider benefit than just for the member owners? Sure, there's the practical benefit that solar provides. It's fantastic for the environment. You know, you're able to produce energy in a really environmentally conscious way. Um, outside of that, we. We also have a community giving fund where we look out for for nonprofits and organizations to support that are in alignment with our values. Mm -hmm. Great. And what is um, what are some of the um, decisions that you as as worker owners have made in order to make the workplace uh, your own? 
in order to to uh, uh, do things differently than you might in another workplace. You know, does it look like uh, uh, any other solar installation company, or is it? Um, uh, have you set the rules in a way uh, where you're, uh, uh, you know, where, where it's meeting your needs uh, uh, better than elsewhere? Well, that's a great question. And I'd say the, co- the company has been tailored to the employees in so many different ways. Um, yeah, it is an extremely collaborative environment. And I feel like there is such, such a culture of frank, open, honest communication. It's it starts from the team leads, um, just the way the language and the way people speak to each other is so respectful and calm and understanding, and I feel like that goes such a long way. Um, in terms of the office, it's a it's a very open environment where people are able to collaborate um, quickly, talk to each other, and there's. In the office space, everybody has the same kind of desk. There isn't a clear hierarchy there either. And one of the interesting things about uh, Namaste, too, is that it's not just uh, a worker co-op. It's also spun off a series of other cooperative models. Can you tell us a bit about those? I'd be happy to. So um, Namaste Solar initially spun off the Amicus Purchasing Cooperative, And the idea was to get other uh, solar installers involved to really pool together our purchasing power. And so these are small uh, solar installers around the country, right, who are not necessarily co-ops. That's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. And so we find that we're able to get deals because we're able to pool our purchasing power, because we're able to really put, put our resources together. So here you're you're using the cooperative model in a way kind of similar uh, uh, to how farmers have used it in the past. You know, when we were talking uh, about farmers, they're doing bulk purchasing, bulk marketing, and uh, you're doing that on the scale of small businesses who are trying to compete with uh, with some of the larger uh, solar firms that are coming up. Absolutely. And what about some of the other spinoffs? So another stim- uh, spinoff that we have is the Amicus operations and maintenance cooperative and that's been more recent but the idea is is that solar systems require some degree of operations and maintenance not much but some and uh, this is a way another way to pool resources and um, to ensure that there are different smaller companies that can help out in various regions so if uh, if I install a solar panel in your region, and uh, uh, but I don't want to go maintain it, I can. I have a deal with your small company through this cooperative to maintain it. That's the idea, but I, I should also add a caveat that it is in its infancy, so it's still developing. Okay, great. And then there's another one in its infancy. There is. Um, so this one is the credit union, and we recently received the charter for that. And the idea is to provide a credit union that supports clean energy. And what's that called? It's the Clean Energy Credit Union. Federal Credit Union. Federal Credit Union. Thank so you. So let's, let's say it again. What, what's that called? The Clean Energy Federal Credit Union. Great. And so can people actually put their money into this like uh, like another credit union and, and participate in financing clean energy? The, the idea is that they will be able to do that in the future. But it's still just getting going. It just got its its uh, charter. 
That's correct. That's very, very exciting. Uh, and so one form of cooperation has spun off uh, a purchasing co-op, uh, a co-op that does maintenance, and now a financial co-op, a credit union that's enabling people to uh, more easily finance uh, access to, to solar energy. That's right. And it's so exciting that this business model is scalable and that it's being replicated. Absolutely. So what lessons, uh, finally, do you think Namaste has for other workplaces? If you were uh, to, to move to another part of the country and had to get a job somewhere else, what kind of lessons would you want to bring from your workplace uh, into your new job? I think one of the principles of Namaste that's had the most resounding impact on me is this idea of extreme transparency. And I think as humans, we're wired to create stories, to become conspiracy theorists, and to be able to have salaries that are transparent, have financials that are made public during our quarterly big picture meetings, eliminates the need to create stories, to create gossip. And I think that is such a, a noble idea for a company. Yeah, it's, it's very powerful. The, uh, and I've seen this working a lot in open source communities, for instance, and uh, where people around the world are building technology together. Transparency becomes a means of trust building. You know, and it's something that I think uh, the not just uh, non-cooperative companies have to learn from, but actually a lot of cooperatives uh, uh, could learn from how how uh, this new wave of of organizations is taking advantage of information technology to share information among members much more easily and use that to build trust uh, to counter that tendency that we have uh, uh, for conspiracy theorizing. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nathan. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar-in-residence of media studies at CU Boulder. Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, Scholar-in-Residence of Media Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. We're with you on the fourth Thursday of every month and uh, talking about economic democracy and cooperative business. Today we're focusing in particular on some worker-owned cooperatives in the Denver-Boulder area, ways in which people are able to actually own and govern uh, their own workplaces. And, and for this last segment, uh, uh, we're joined by Linda Phillips, who's one of the leading co-op lawyers uh, here in Colorado. And, and she's part of a, a pair with uh, Jason Weiner, who you've heard on the show uh, in the past, uh, uh, the Colorado Co-op Cooperative Developers. So welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you, Nathan. It's good to be here. Now, you set up um, what you think might have been the first worker cooperative in Colorado. Is that right? Yes, uh, this was uh, way back in 2005. Uh, I was working for a small law firm there, and my mentor, Jim Dean, um, and I uh, had been working with co-ops for a long time, first as a paralegal, and then I went to law school and got my law degree. And 
uh, Jim did a lot of work with co-ops over the years, and we were approached by a small company in Aspen that uh, was a, a wine shop. And they, the owner had been the owner for 30 years, and he wanted to retire, and he didn't have anybody to sell his business to, so he wanted to sell it to his employees through a cooperative. He had read about it um, in, in an article somewhere in some magazine and said, oh, that's what I want to do. So he came to Jim and I um, uh, to see if we could help, and we certainly were able to. Uh, it was a very, very small organization, very small co-op. It had four members, um, um, but the employees uh, that were interested in, in purchasing a share and, and getting involved in the management of the co-op were very excited about it. We had one employee that didn't want to, mostly because his wife didn't want to. So that's one of the things you have to think about when you're talking about uh, building a co-op or getting ownership in a co-op is the families of the, of the owners are often involved in the decision-making process. But that co-op was called the Aspen Wine Guild, and unfortunately, it only lasted as a co-op for a few years and converted back to the original owner because the employees just didn't understand the responsibilities involved with being owners. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and now you're somebody who specializes in cooperative development and this sort of thing. Why is it, what, what's different about doing law in a cooperative context? You know, why might it be important for uh, a co-op to work with somebody with experience in this particular kind of business model rather than, you know, another kind of lawyer? Well, there's, um, there's a, a variety of reasons. One of the big reasons is there are specific cooperative statutes. Um, that uh, allow entities to be formed in Colorado. And many lawyers are not familiar with those statutes. Uh, you have your general business corporate statutes, your S-corporations, your limited liability company statutes, uh, your partnership statutes, and most business lawyers are familiar with those, but they are not familiar with the cooperative statutes. And I think here in Colorado, we have less than 10 attorneys that that really know co-op statutes and work in co-op law. So it, I, I think it's important um, if you're thinking about co-ops to talk to a business lawyer that can give you options. For example, I put together a, um, uh, a worker-owned company. It was a conversion a couple of years ago. Uh, it's called The Book Rack over on South Colorado Boulevard. And I talked to the owners many times about forming a co-op. Uh, they were buying it from the old owner, and they just didn't feel comfortable. So you have to have somebody that's familiar with LLCs as well as with co-ops and, and the advantages and disadvantages both legally and financially in the different forms of business. Now, since that first effort, have you worked with other worker co-ops uh, in Colorado? Oh, definitely. Um, uh, one and one of the things I wanted to talk about in this in this program was the variety of industries that that co-ops can be formed in. I worked with a an organization called Hearts and Hands Co-op, and Hearts and Hands is a group of uh, disabled people who uh, make um, uh, uh, gifts that they sell at fairs and. And uh, they, they are in a work program that is paid for with, by Medicare dollars and Medicaid dollars. And uh, the, the person who was running this, this training program wanted to give these folks a feeling of ownership. And they were at a, a skill level where ownership was possible for them. So they formed a co-op. 
and um, it's not a co-op where they make much money. Um, I mean, probably less than $100 a month, but they have a feeling of pride in their work, a feeling of pride in their ownership of the company, and um, and and it's all equal votes. They get together and have meetings, and, and it's a really great organization. And that, that's a model that, you know, in, in Europe has been spreading quite a bit, this mm-hmm. idea of using cooperatives as a mechanism for uh, enabling people who might otherwise have trouble entering the workforce mm-hmm. uh, to, to uh, find a place and mm-hmm. be able to contribute. Correct. Uh, and then another um, area that I think uh, worker ownership is expanding is in multi-stakeholder co-ops. And in these kinds of organizations, you have not just the workers as owners, but other types of members in the organization. For example, um, and I think you're going to have them on as a guest speaker in a couple of months, is Mayu Meditation Co-op in Sierra McNamara. Um, I helped her convert from her solely owned business into a multi-stakeholder community-owned business. And she has three, four different classes of membership. There are the employees. um, There are the teachers that teach the classes at the co-op. And then you have your community. You have members in the community, and they have different levels of membership uh, for community members. And uh, it allows for workers to have a voice in their business, but also allows for other stakeholders that have um, um, an interest in the company to also participate. And, I mean, on the one hand, I I see this kind of model uh, being adopted more and more. People want to recognize and incorporate more of their businesses stakeholders into the process but it also seems like that could add complexity it definitely adds complexity um, as an attorney of course we love complexity so it's <laughs> it's loads of fun to be to give be given a chore of of okay we want nine classes of membership and i just put together a co-op a purchasing co-op that has nine classes of membership and i talked to these this committee that was putting this co-op together, and they're from out of state, but they're, um, uh, they have three classes of investor members and six classes of patron members, including employees being one class. And we talked quite a bit about conflicts of interest. We talked about you know uh, the investors wanting you know the higher return on their investment. The employees want a high, wanting a higher salary. The salespeople is a class. We t- you talk about it a lot. We'll see how it goes uh, going forward. Uh, we put it together so that we make it as uh, as equal as possible. It's still one member, one vote, which is true for all co-ops, um, but it does make it more complex, definitely. And one of the challenges, you know, you, you mentioned uh, investor owners. Um, one of the challenges that worker co-ops often face is in financing. What are some of the strategies uh, that worker co-ops or these multi-stakeholder co-ops uh, uh, can use to obtain financing short of uh, selling off bits and pieces of the company to investors? Well, um, Colorado is very lucky in that it has a statute um, um, called the Limit- Limited Cooperative Association Act. It's got a longer name, but I don't want to go through that. And and it allows investors to have a stake in a company um, and have voting rights. In the standard co-op statutes, uh, many of them around the country, you can uh, sell preferred shares in a co-op, but those preferred shares, the preferred stockholders, don't have any say in the management of the company. 
whereas under the limited cooperative association statutes, you can have uh, voting rights for those investors. And uh, they cannot take control of company. The statutes uh, are very explicit about that. Uh, the patron members, the, the members that actually use the services or the goods or the product of the co-op, um, are the ones that have to have majority control of voting rights on the board of directors. But this way, the investors can come in and, and uh, have a say. And other ways um, are your standard. Uh, you can have crowdfunding. You can have um, some uh, stock offerings. Those kinds of things are your standard ways, the way you would of any kind of a business. Great. And I, what kinds of investors might be interested in this sort of thing? Is it is it the same kinds of investors that might uh, buy into other kinds of businesses, or do you have to be more selective in finding uh, the right the right uh, sources of capital? Well, unless you want to go through um, um, an SEC uh, regulatory offering um, disclosure system, which is quite complicated, you try to limit it to what they are called uh, what they are called accredited investors. Uh, Jason, my colleague, is the one that I turn to for all of the uh, uh, stock option questions that our clients may have. But uh, there, are, there are ways to go about it that makes it more simple, but they do have to be people that are knowledgeable about investing. Uh, I find that the co-ops that I've worked with that do have investors, um, they either are uh, vendors or customers in the industry that they are involved in that are interested in, in seeing the co-op uh, thrive, or they are customers, or they are uh, former owners that uh, also want to see the co-op thrive. So all of these people um, have an interest in, the, in, in seeing the company succeed. And we were hearing from Bill and Amy earlier a bit about how Colorado is really um, uh, starting to step up its co-op game. We have all these uh, uh, foundations and, and uh, organizations in the community who are starting to take an interest in, in this idea that, you know, one of our uh, major uh, uh, candidates for governor we just had on the show, uh, Congressman Jared Polis, is really uh, uh, energized about the opportunities for worker ownership. But I also find that, that our lawyers are our best connected people in this space because because uh, uh, all the co-ops kind of need to go to you at some, some time or another. So can you tell us a little bit about what you think is, is coming up? What's most exciting in the sector here in Colorado? Uh, uh, what, are there new opportunities starting to appear, uh, new kinds of companies, uh, new uh, formations that we should be looking for? Well, um, um, it is an exciting time here in Colorado. I think um, through uh, Bill's organization, the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union Co-op Development Center, um, through our organization, Colorado Cooperative Developers, through Community Wealth Building Network and other organizations, um, there's increased exposure to the benefits of cooperatives. Uh, I'm trying to put together a uh, class at Denver University on co-ops, either through the law school or through the business school, and maybe a double accreditation. Um, we need to educate the public more. Uh, I think people are familiar with co-ops, but not really familiar with co-ops. They don't understand it as a separate business model. They think, well, yes, I'm a member of credit union, but I didn't know I could go sit on the board of directors. They don't think of themselves as owners. Um, I buy uh, things from Ace Hardware, not understanding that Ace Hardware is one of the largest purchasing co-ops in the country. 
Um, I buy produce from a local uh, farmer's market, not understanding that many of those producers are bringing their wares to the... So I think it's a, an education process. Um, Colorado is at the very beginning. Uh, there are several states that are doing, have been doing quite a bit more than we are, but I think we're in a very opportune position right now. Great. And for other professionals like you, uh, lawyers, accountants, uh, who might be interested in getting involved in this, in this, uh, 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 in this surge, uh, uh, how do you start learning? Uh, how do you start gaining the skills necessary to work with co-ops effectively? Well, I ran into a, a young attorney the other day um, at uh, one of the uh, uh, Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center conferences, and and she wanted to learn more about co-ops. And so I steered her initially towards the statutes because attorneys are very good at, at reading statutes. And I told her to call me and pick my brain whenever she needed to do that. Um, I think Bill and I have talked about it in the past of putting together a Colorado Cooperative Council of some sort. It's something that we still talk about periodically and would like to do at some point. But bringing together uh, professionals and co-op owners and co-ops themselves and have training sessions on managing co-ops, have training sessions on um, uh, financing co-ops. And I think the co-op study circle is a, is a good way to start that. But I, I think it does need to get more into the nitty-gritty of, of how, how to do all of these things. Absolutely. And there is a national organization as well that's been forming? Yes. Um, there's a couple of national organizations. One that's been around for quite, some, quite a few years is the National Cooperative Business Association. And um, they are nationwide and international. They do a lot of work over, overseas uh, helping uh, local communities put together co-ops. But we, um, Jason and I, and another gentleman by the name of Thomas Beckett, uh, helped found the uh, Cooperative Professionals Association four years ago. This is our fourth annual meeting that we're going to have outside of Virginia, uh, in D in, outside of D.C. in Arlington next month. And this is an association of CPAs, attorneys, and, attorn and uh, accountants who work with what we call non-traditional co-ops. Uh, so outside of electric co-ops, outside of agricultural co-ops, all the other different kinds of co-ops. And, and we help with the training. Uh, we put together seminars. We have, we're we're uh, going to be talking this year about having a formal organization and doing quarterly webinars, that kind of thing. Well, that's fantastic. It's very exciting. And where can people find you at Co uh, Colorado Cooperative Developers? Uh, www.ccd.coop. You can find both of us there and then links to our private websites as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGA News. It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. You can catch us on the fourth Thursday of every month. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar in residence of media studies at CU Boulder. And we'd like to thank our guests uh, this evening, Linda Phillips, who we just heard from, Ankit Sharma and Bill Stevenson, Bill Stevenson and Amy Barras uh, from the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union. Thank you all so much for joining us. We have uh, uh, a series of events coming up this fall uh, that we hope you'll join us for. If you're 
uh, uh, driving anywhere near Denver uh, right now. Actually, at 7 p.m. tonight, uh, we're going to have a, uh, a meeting on how to start a, a housing co-op. That's at Wholesome House in Denver. You can find more information at our website, coloradocoops.info. On October 17th, uh, we're going to have uh, a gathering with uh, Bill and Amy and Rocky Mountain Farmers Union uh, about how to start a worker co-op, and that's going to be at Messiah Community Church uh, in Denver at 7 p.m. And then on December 1st at 6.30, uh, we're going to meet at the Mayu Sanctuary, that multi-stakeholder cooperative uh, uh, that's a meditation space and uh, classes are held there. Uh, we'll learn. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll first uh, uh, sit in meditation a little bit, and then we'll we'll learn about the um, role that spirituality has played in in the development of of co-ops, and, and and in particular the interesting story of of Mayu Sanctuary itself. You can uh, find details um, and past shows uh, uh, for the Co-op Power Hour at ColoradoCoops.info. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll uh, look forward to having you back next month. And everything can change so quick. They'll say we are lost or we're dreaming, or they'll make a dream for us. They'll try to come up with a good story about why we belong at the back of the bus, about why we belong in this position, about how we don't know what we meant, about how there most certainly isn't any such thing as the 99%, but everything can change.